Hello and welcome to another episode of the Electrical Apparatus Show. I'm your host, David Miller, and I think we have another very exciting show in store for everyone today. As promised last month, we do have another special guest uh, this month. Uh, That would be Clint Switzker, Product Development Engineer at ICR Services, whose tagline is Partners in Productivity, and which from our conversation, which we'll cut to briefly, I think that is definitely a suiting appellation. So this is a shop that does service work on robotic systems from the servo motor outward. So they're um, not just working on the servo motor, they're also getting into some of those upstream electronics too. Uh, They partner with ESA shops and manufacturers as well uh, to perform service on robots, in essence. It's as simple as that, and we'll hear more about that in a bit uh, when we cut to the interview, and I'll do that soon because I don't want to keep listeners waiting too long. Um, I will note, however, before that, that this is in the context of our September cover story, uh, which was titled, uh, I hope rather cleverly, The Robotic Arms Race. So in that story, we, we looked at servo motor repair, particularly uh, for industrial robotic systems, uh, with the intention of ascertaining whether or not this might be a growth market. That is, something that an ESA shop might move into and, and find profitable as, as a means of expanding their service portfolio. Uh, much like the way we addressed pumps last month with our, our special guest, Gene Vogel, saying, oh, is there a substantial amount of work to be found in expanding your service portfolio into pumps? Now we're saying the same thing for servo motors. Um, although I will note with a particular emphasis on robotic systems. Obviously, they're also used in CNC machines, among other things, but we're, we're, we're really focusing on robotics this month. So um, the answers we've come across um, on that note are is most certainly yes, by the way. Um, um, there are challenges to be surmounted as well in dealing with servo motors, but we found that, by and large, people think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, So we do cover those challenges, by the way, fairly well in the cover story for September. Um, For anyone who's interested in that, curious, I I do encourage them to to take a look. It's on page 27 uh, of the most recent issue, the September issue. Um, And I think that's that's something that um, if you're interested more in the challenges that exist in the servo motor space and how they might be surmounted, um, that would be something useful to look at. And there's a great kind of case study that's woven into the article as well, of a shop called ANC Electric that's out in Michigan. So I spoke to their owner and president, Dan Arker, who tells what, in my opinion, is a very interesting story of how his shop initially got into servo motor repair. And and I do want to get to our interview for this month, so I won't recount the whole thing. But I will just say, for those who who are curious about this, um, this story, the, the real value in it, in my opinion, um, is that it explores servo motor repair not only from a technical standpoint, but with an eye toward the managerial and financial planning that might go into making this transition. So, in my view, the story of ANC Electric is a kind of illustrative tale, um, which I guess might help you to envision how it is your your shop might over a long period of time, because it, it did take Dan a long time to do it, get into this space. And so, in addition to that, I, I think it's a good narrative. I always try to make the stories some um, narratives. I always, I always try to be, in addition to purveying information, a storyteller. So, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, without further ado, I do want to go ahead and cut to Clint Switzker. Um, so again, they're a company that works on industrial robotics and servo motors, um, and this is just another great example of a thriving company that's working on servo motors, working on industrial robotic systems, 
and doing very well as well. So, um, and again, uh, the other thing is that they're an interesting company because they, they partner with other shops who may be able to do some of the more mechanical work on these systems and pieces of equipment, but might need a little bit of help on the electronic side. And so that's a very interesting angle, which Clint will talk about in more detail. Uh, because, you know, if you're a shop that wants to move in this direction and are not sure where to begin and, you know, want to do what you can do but need help on the rest of it, uh, from what Clint tells me, they're there to help you with that. And so they're not a competitor. Um, they're someone who is more likely than not going to help other shops to expand their own operations. Um, so after the call, we'll come back and we'll we'll unpack in a little bit more detail what Clint has said. And I have as well in front of me some some statistics from market research on on automation trends and robotics more broadly that I think can uh, kind of anchor this in a in a broader economic perspective. Um, but we'll come back to that after the call. Uh, for now, I'm going to go over uh, go ahead and go over to Clint. So. First question, uh, just to get us going, um, tell me and tell our listeners a little bit about your company and the services it offers. Okay. Uh, the, the company is ICR Services, and they've been around for 25-plus uh, years, and they started out in the uh, resistance welder repair, and then that transitioned into uh, robotic repair electronic repair. So so now the company has grown quite a bit and does uh, electronics, mechanical, servo motor repair. Uh, they also supply service, uh, robot refurbishments, robot sales, equipment sales, and then also decommissioning. So they have quite a few services that they offer now. I see. And maybe in telling me the services you offer, you've kind of already implicitly answered this next question. Um, but but tell me who your primary clients are, who who the customers you're really most serving are. Uh, as far as industry-wise, uh, typically it's automotive, aerospace, uh, food and beverage, medical, energy, uh, really any type of manufacturing companies. Um, like customer-wise, uh, Ford would be one, Cummins, uh, we do some work through distribution companies, Man and Fastenal, uh, and then Flex and Gate. So we, we see quite a wide range of equipment company. I see. And and now something that has um, come up for me repeatedly, um, looking into robotic service and repair in particular, um, and which is often said by the robotics manufacturers themselves, is that... Um, these machines simply don't break down very often. People say they're over-engineered and they need very little maintenance and so on. Um, yet I found while talking to service companies, um, whether they merely work on the servo motors um, or have a more complete focus on industrial robotic systems, that they don't think this is necessarily the case. And, you know, at ICR, you you offer repair services on robots. So I, I guess I assume you would have to also... Uh, agree with that. But in any case, help me and, and help our listeners to understand how often an industrial robot is typically going to require repair, and then when that happens, what the most common failures one might see are going to be. Okay, yeah. So with industrial robotics, it, it varies uh, what you'll see. But typically, like with any product, the manu- 
manufacturer has a warranty. And usually you don't see any failures during that, you know, first warranty period. Um, but typically on robots, it, it kind of progresses as the robot and equipment ages. So initially you'll see motors and drives and teach pendants being the higher failure units. And then as a little more time goes by, then the failures, those failures will continue, but then you'll get additional failures like uh, robotic wrists, uh, other circuit boards, uh, RVs, which are basically gear reducers. And then, you know, finally you'll get to the need of a foot rebuild. So that, that's why we have so many services here. I see. And so would you say that the... Um it's mostly a, an older kind of pre-installed base that you see your, your main prospects coming from then after those initial warranties have expired rather than obviously, you know, newer robotics that have been recently installed. Yeah, I, I would say that that's fair to say. Typically, uh, you get new installs. We'll start seeing repairs one or two years after they've been installed. Um, and the volume is lower. But then, you know, you get into that third year, fourth year, fifth year, then the volume really starts to increase. I see. I see. And and that's interesting because it implies that should companies um, sort of proceed to automate, um, that there would be kind of a delay before any any um, prospects came in. And, and that's kind of interesting. But um, answer me this next. Um, might it be the case that an industrial robot that's utilized in um, one particular application might require um, more service and maintenance than than it was than if it were utilized in another. So, for instance, um, one thing that was said to me by another company was that uh, an assembly robot that works in a very clean environment might be less likely to see breakdown uh, due to you know lack of contamination and things like that. Whereas something that's um, maybe like a milling or grinding machine uh, might be exposed to particles in the air, and so in that application, you would see a greater likelihood of it needing repairs. Is is along those lines? Does anything um, come to mind for you? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that's fairly true as far as uh, the cleanliness of the environment. So typically, harsher environment environments are like foundry welding locations. So you'll see when you see the robots, there, there's usually a lot of debris on the robots, um, well, slag, things like that. Um, applications, machine tending, things like that, where they're pulling parts out of the areas, you'll see oil contamination. And, and even though the robot manufacturers try to prevent issues, you know, so they'll add things to these applications to make them more durable. Uh, it, it really wear out. So unless you're doing maintenance on the protective components that they've added, uh, you'll see failures start to appear more rapidly on these applications. Uh, but, but basically, it, it's really the hours of service that will dictate uh, what's needed, which is your higher maintenance schedules and service schedules. I see. Yeah, and I guess I kind of ask with the intention of coming to a better understanding of, um, I guess you would say what industry subsectors in particular may or may not provide service and repair outfits with the most prospects. Um, in the interest of not talking about it as if it's a monolith, but, you know, sort of um, differentiating more so. So, so 
which I think would probably be to the benefit of our listeners. But let, let's come back to um, the servo motor in, in particular now. Let's let's talk about the servo motor. Um, when we're looking at this, um, or I should say, when a service technician is looking at this, uh, what kind of unique challenges are they are they going to see? What are, what are they going to be faced with in uh, diagnosing it, testing it? and getting it back up and running that they might not encounter where they're working on a more typical um, AC or DC motor? Uh, yeah, I, I guess for servo motors, which are ma- mainly uh, robotic applications, uh, also CNC applications, the big difference is there there is a very precise feedback device attached to the motor, and also the rotor of the motor has permanent magnets on it, which you won't find in a, a general application AC motor. Uh, so those are the unique components of the motor. Uh, I guess the real trick is diagnosing those two components on whether they're uh, still usable on the repair end. So magnets typically can you lose magnetism. And the other issue is synchronizing the feedback loops to that rotor so that the motor operates properly. Uh, that, those are the biggest issues with servo motors. I see. And and on this um, this encoder alignment, this this need to to synchronize this feedback mechanism, um, I know that um, according to ICR's website, um, you have some technology that allows you, if I understand correctly. Um, to surmount these challenges. So I, I think it's two different products that are mentioned. The first is um, Octava Engineering Sync 3, and then, and I hope I'm pronouncing this next one, I think it's Alinea X3, right? Um, and, oh, yeah, correct. Yes, and so so tell me about the abilities those provide and, and the advantages they're going to offer. Uh, so on both of those devices, they're, they're similar devices. They are encoder diagnostic and testing equipment and what they what they're used for is to determine if the feedback device is good and it's reusable or if it needs repair Uh, the other function that it performs is the ability of our technicians to synchronize that device to the servo motor at the uh, final repair stage Uh, right now we're we're in the process our encoder and test equipment at all of our locations with the uh, Octava equipment. Uh, what we found is that the devices um, have a lot more capability than previous devices we've used. Uh, so typically, we get better uh, um, viewing of the signals is one of the things we can see. So actually, we're, we're able to see the encoder signals where other equipment, uh, we weren't able to see the signals. And we could not really determine if the encoder resolver was working properly because it was just a random number or you know some light or some indicator on the other equipment. And then the, the other part of the, the uh, package that we've seen is the ease of use. Uh, it's really uh, quite simple to use a lot fewer things to set up, no adapters, no patch cables, uh, things like that. So it, it just really makes us more efficient and our quality much higher as well. I see. So it sounds like there have been significant improvements then in your ability to do this, um, where it was 
substantially more more complicated and 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 difficult before, um, and and yet there have been improvements such that the process has been been streamlined. That's kind of what I'm getting here. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So now the the Octava um, stuff is this. I, I, I'm not. I'm a little unclear. Is it strictly in-house technology, or or is this a product that is um, for sale to others on the market? Uh, this product is for sale. I see on the market. Yeah, I see. So anyone could purchase. I wasn't. I wasn't clear. So anyone could purchase this and use it. Okay. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I wasn't entirely sure. So now, now bookending from this, um, speak to me in a little bit more detail about the the importance of the data in, in diagnosing and evaluating failed servo motors. So um, if possible, I, I guess there's really kind of two parts to this question. We can look at it from, from two angles. Um, the first is what, of which is, is looking at the, the tests that are used to collect data from a motor that's been brought in for service um, so that you can diagnose the problem, find out what's wrong with it and get to work. And then the second part of it is the importance of having the data records on hand already um, to then benchmark motor performance against. I know that's a kind of complicated way to phrase the question. I apologize, but if you could kind of address that 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 two pronged importance of data for me. Yeah. So so on the the data for servo motors, every manufacturer um, goes about it a different way, and and much of the data is unknown. So you get certain manufacturers that, that share some information about their, their equipment and uh, even their alignments, and then you get other manufacturers that don't. Uh, some of the alignments are uh, kind of automatic, can be programmed into the feedback device and you know, just by setting a parameter. Uh, so there's, there's a, a wide array of data out there and different ways to collect it. But basically... On the motor itself, you'll have basic information such as a winding data, uh, electromotor force data, things like that. Um, if they have brakes, you'll have brake torque um, and operating speeds on the motor. So uh, we typically will go through and create our own data sheets, um, and we follow uh, basically the same format. So we'll, we'll go through and we'll take resistant readings. Uh, we'll usually document any kind of nameplate information uh, that's available, which is usually speed, voltage, torque, things like that. Um, also character of the motor, anything unique, uh, usually doesn't have a, a keyway, things like this, just typical um, mechanical attributes to the motor. And then from there, we'll figure out what the, mo- the motor rotation is. And so we have a, a, a sequence that we go through on every motor, and that sequence is the same so that it doesn't matter which motor it is. We'll, we'll follow that same sequence to determine motor rotation. Uh, we also determine uh, pole count of the motor, uh, the generated voltage of, of the motor by backdriving the motor, uh, we'll do thermal device checks, things like that. And then lastly, we'll we'll do the alignment check. And what we typically do is we'll, we'll find the alignment position of each motor. And then we'll document that. And after we've, if, say it's a new type of 
will document that several times uh, as a quality insurance to make sure that this is repeatable and found to be the same across all motors at a certain manufacturer. And then once we have that documented, that becomes the standard. I see. And so in these cases where um, data isn't available for manufacturers, um, um, do you think that potentially um, it could create, for those who, who don't already have, I suppose, the, the pre-existing expertise that, that you have um, at ICR, could it potentially create a kind of um, barrier to entry where there's trouble for someone in working on some of these more sophisticated servo motors if they don't have access to the requisite data, I guess you would say? Uh, yeah, potentially. That could be uh, an issue. Um, the CR, like I said previously, has been around for a long time. And we are in the robotic and CNC industries. So we have uh, test drives, things like that, uh, that a lot of the other shops don't have. I see. Uh, which does give us a, a little additional benefit there because we can do a, a performer final test with actual OEM equipment. I see. And, and the, the Octava products, though, and, and there are some others out there as well that are, are similar. Of course, I, I want to note for everyone listening, but the Octava products, they would um, tend to assist with this in some regards, right, when we're talking about um, these feedback mechanisms and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, that I mean, regardless of our our final test equipment, the uh, Lineax and the Sync Three are strictly for diagnosing the feedback and setting it, which is critical on servo motor repair. So, without that type of equipment, you're you're not able to do uh, proper servo motor mm-hmm. repair. Yeah, uh, you, you can try to maybe mechanically mark the device but but that really you're you're just taking quite by trying to go about it that way i see so and this is a division between the initial diagnostics and then the the final testing too i think is is maybe a distinction right. we're kind yeah. of making here yeah i see um and so um now now since we've we've kind of covered the the initial um diagnostics and evaluation um so now kind of fast-track me through how you handle the servo motor after that. Um, help me and our listeners to understand. Um, I, I know that, and, and you can see this on ICR's website, you have a very sort of rigorous standardized series of um, procedures that you go through with the servo motor. Um, and, and I would imagine that that rigor probably lends itself well to the ultimate quality of, of what you do. So so walk Walk us through it. Um, walk us through your, your um, I think it's a seven-step process, and kind of fast-track it for me. Okay. Yeah, we can go through, through the processes real quick. So, so typically, uh, the motor will come, and some type of, of failure or, or uh, issue is observed on the motor. So, so that's kind of a root cause analysis that we provide to the customer. So based on what we find, we can report back to the customer this issue was eventually caused by one or two things so that they have some uh, way to go about improving things on their end. Um, But after that, we'll go through and disassemble the motor, 
we'll check all the components, we'll check all the mechanical fits, make sure that they're proper, uh, check all the electrical components, uh, the, the brake, the motor winding, uh, the feedback device. And then after that, then that unit will go through a cleaning process. So all the components are cleaned. Any machine work that is required is done in-house. So we'll, we'll rebuild brakes, uh, repair bores, repairing journals, things like that. And then uh, if the feedback device needs to be replaced or repaired, that will get done as well. And then, then the unit from there goes into uh, the ready-to-build queue. So from that point, it gets assigned to a technician. And then that technician will assemble the motor and uh, set the alignment or synchronization feedback device to the motor. And then that will be put into final test, which will be verified by the test technician. And then from that point, um, all the pictures that were taken throughout the process are accumulated onto the repair report, which is then sent to the customer with any technical notes that the technicians that have worked on it have found as it's gone through the process. I see. And do you think that the, this is a kind of left field question, but do you think that the thoroughness of the repair report that you um, provide your customers with um, provides them with um, any sort of unique or particular value um, in having such a, an insight into the, uh, you know, being transparent, I suppose you would say, about, about what was done? Uh, yeah, I think so. What we've we've expanded that and, and changed that over the years um, to to continually provide the customer with more and more information on, on what we're finding uh, because we're really trying to partner with them. Mm-hmm. So so we're trying to guide them and assist them on what we find so that they can make changes or corrections on their equipment to prevent that from happening again. So, you know, we're kind of trying to stop that coming back for the same exact reason by right. giving them this additional information, which they, they tend to appreciate the, the effort of us doing that. And so you find that's ultimately beneficial to have that transparency, to have that relationship, because, you know, I mean, not to be crude, but, but someone might imagine that um, if you make revenue on, on having a repair come back. You know, the, the old joke about auto mechanics is that they, you know, always, you know, leave something broken so the car comes back. But but obviously that's not good business practice. You find that ultimately in the long run, you are much better served by being, partnering with the customer, trying to prevent further failures and, and ultimately being very, um, tra- and that's a simple lesson that I imagine everyone in service and repair knows. But but you do find that you're at, at ICR that, that that's, been effective for you over the years yeah definitely that that has always served us well Uh, we our customer base continually grows year to year and the volume of work also grows so it it has always benefited us i see you help your customers and you help yourself as well in the process and so um yeah and i i i want to um and so to ask you this too, um, and, and maybe we've already um, already sort of um, played this question out, but in case there's anything else you want to add, um, 
are there any other unique tools or pieces of equipment that that you use that you feel set your operation apart or or otherwise gives you an edge over others you know we talked about octava and so on but outside of that uh the thing that we do have uh that typically other companies don't is uh, we have a a i know test that we can perform on either electronics or motors And, and so this is kind of in the servo motor realm you know it, it can check the power supplies that power pipes which then power the motors or, or vice versa but so we have at each of our locations dyno that enable the technicians to do this whether it's an electronic technician or a mechanical technician and so the one thing that uh, really sets ICR apart and these dynos provide uh, torque curves and speed curves and average curves for each motor or drive that's being And so the way that unit typically operates, it will provide some kind of torque command to the to the dyno system. And then with our test systems, we run those through a uh, some type of test routine, whether it's a servo routine or single routine. And during the entire time of the test, the dyno is accumulating data and generating these graphs that are then plotted out, which right from the dyno itself, we can email those to the customer. Uh, to do is we'll forward the test reports to customer service. It'll get advanced to the customer file and uh, emailed to the main customer. But these, these reports are always kept in the computer system, so they can call anytime and say, I want to see the test report on such and such work order, and we can provide it to them at that point as well. I see. And we we started out talking about this, and now as we kind of head into a concluding round of questions, I want to circle back to it. And um, this is um, work that's done on robotic systems more broadly outside of just the servo motor. Um, and I'm talking about, um, in particular here, the upstream electronics, um, the amplifiers, controls, so on and so forth. I know ICR um, maybe is kind of on the cutting edge, you might say, because in addition to, to working on servo motors, you, you do also work on those electronics as well, correct? Yes, correct, we do. So, so yeah, any oh, type ahead. of electronics that, that drives the motor we have the ability to repair those as well. And, and I know we kind of started out in the servo motor side of things. Um, and I know your customers are maybe just interested in the servo motor side of things. But um, you know, we can do the electronics. So we're not necessarily trying to work from anyone. So if, if one of your listeners may have the opportunity to uh, get in servo drive or power supply repair, things like that, we would be happy to support them. And and we would not uh, try to go after that work. We would just take it in from them and, and repair it for them, and then they can send it back to their customers. And, and that's kind of, that goes along with the whole partnering thing. We partner with our customers, and we'll also partner with 
in our business. And we're, we're basically willing to help out wherever we can. I see. So have you had in, in the past circumstances where uh, maybe an ESA shop that, that works on servo motors but isn't um, versed in the electronic expertise um, has sort of contracted or outsourced work on the, the electronics to you and where you have um, partnered with them in that regard? Is that an arrangement that you have uh, made in the past then? Yes. I see. We have done that uh, many times with many different and. It, it, it can be even motors. You know, maybe maybe they specialize in a certain motor, but they see these motors that you can't repair, but we can. So we would take those in, repair them, send them back to them, and that way they, they can keep their customers happy. We're not in any way, you know, we can't touch every customer out there, We're, and that's not really our goal. I see. And this, I imagine, would be, would be very interesting to our listeners because... Um, of course, we have many who are um, interested in moving in this direction, and yet sometimes there are um, technical barriers. And so I think this sounds a very um, sort of positive collaborative note, actually, because it says um, if you can take on some of that work but don't have the um, technical sophistication to take on all of it, um, you can still move in that direction um, through this kind of partnership. That's kind of the, the note I'm hearing here, and I, I think that's... Um, Actually, a fantastic sentiment <laughs> uh, to put it to put it bluntly. Yeah, yeah. So the, that's kind of what our you know. If you go to our website, it says partners in productivity. So we we are literally we want to partner to whoever the customer is, and, and whether it is direct to a manufacturing company or some other service company. It's not important who that customer is. And uh, I, I've been in this business for 30 years, and I've been through the days where, you know, people would sabotage other companies' work just so that they would get a black eye. And, you know, I've, I've gone down all these steps myself, and that's something we do not do here. I see. I see. And it's, I, I think it's wise because I think it's ultimately um, not a good way to do business long term. Um, but I, I'm actually very glad that we were able to have this discussion today. And I, I think that um, this is going to be really great for our listeners. And so um, unless you have anything else to add, I actually think this is a, a, a great place to, to draw us down to a conclusion. No, no, I cannot think of anything right now to add. Uh, you know that, and uh, if you come back and think of uh, some some other questions or, or things come up um, from your listeners, they have questions to you. Uh, don't hesitate to contact me anytime. Sure. And so, um, Clint, I just want to thank you one more time for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. I was glad to do it. So again, one more time, I know I've said it a thousand times, that was Clint Switzker from ICR Services. Uh, And before we close out for this month, I just want to, um, as I promised before we went into the interview, uh, walk through some pretty interesting statistics and information, market research data on automation and robotics, and also highlight a few takeaways from the talk with Clint, which I think are, are worth pulling out and talking through in a little bit more detail. So 
First of all, the elephant in the room is automation itself. The growing presence of the types of industrial robotic systems at ICR uh, and ANC Electric from the print story we've mentioned uh, work on. Um, so it is very important to say that this is, in fact, a growth market. It's not just Dan from ANC Electric saying it. It's not just Clint from ICR saying it. The, the numbers are out, people. It's, it's everywhere. You can, you can read it in any number of B2B or trade publications. You can look at market research. Automation is, is growing. Um, and we covered a great deal of this, actually, in our January issue. Um, far at the beginning of this year, the reshoring revolution, which was around the time I, I first started this podcast. I think my first go hosting this podcast was, was talking about that story. But um, what it really is is that automation is, is linked to reshoring um, because – when you're bringing a company back to the U.S., and, and this is happening increasingly for a variety of reasons, not only because there's an interest in, in reshoring supply chains and bringing manufacturing back for its own sake, um, but because obviously um, much of the trade protectionism we, we've seen in the past few, few years has, um, in many cases, raised costs for companies that don't, don't and incentivized you know, you know, reshoring for those who do want to come back. Um, but, but the automation, it, it, cut, it cuts costs. You are competing with cheaper labor overseas. Um, automation cuts costs. Um, it helps to deal with, with tighter labor markets. In many cases, manufacturers cannot find the workers they need. And so, you know, whether or not the labor market should be that tight is something else to look into. I mean, um, there are reasons to assume that there should be a broader pool of workers than there are. Um, Maybe that's not something we want to go into, um, but the fact of the matter is the work pool that exists for manufacturers to hire from that is um, appropriately skilled and available um, is tight, they report. Um, and so robots help companies to, to come back and reshore even when they don't have the workers. Um, so, and, you know, historically many people might see robots as a negative for workers, but it, it's not necessarily the case because, as I said, one, there's not enough workers as it is. Um, two, there are certain new jobs created by automation. Three, the simple maxim is some is better than none. If you can bring back um, 100 jobs out of 1,000, it's better than a losing 1,000 jobs. Um, and then, of course, there's other benefits, which we've covered time and time again, that, that come from manufacturing other than direct employment. They engage in R&D spending. Um, they allow for supply chain security. Um, they're a demand multiplier, meaning... Uh, people who earn wages working for manufacturing go and spend it um, at all other manner of businesses, which is going to cause economic stimulation. And then, yeah, you know, they invest in communities. They often pay to train their own people. There's really a slew of benefits here. But um, it's all of that that is is probably why there is an interest in bringing manufacturing back, uh, which is bipartisan, by the way, um, and an interest in automation that goes along with that. And the other thing is COVID. Um, uh, this is one we weren't able to address in January because it hadn't happened yet. So uh, COVID is is not only accelerating the return of many supply chains, but, but creating the need for less human contact. So plants that can run without human workers or even just with more distance between human workers are of increasing interest. This not, you know, I think probably something I think we've talked about in the magazine is how this has increased interest in remote monitoring software um, for various machinery. But I don't know if we've touched on the robot angle as much. You know, 
to give you an example of this, one setup I've heard of is um, manufacturing facilities that have you know numerous work cells where they're lined up and they're kind of separated off by fencing um, with a small mobile collaborative robot in every other work cell. So you 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 don't have a robot in every cell. You have human robot, human robot, human robot, just to keep the people more distance. And so that's only possible because the robotic solution has gotten smaller, more mobile, smarter, more modular. And so this kind of partial automation, as opposed to installing some large immovable system, which is very expensive, um, is more possible. Um, and, and that gets at something else, which is what we're seeing is smaller organizations beginning to adopt automation. This is no longer just for the big guys. Um, you know, cobots, for example, which I just mentioned for tasks like machine tending um, at, at smaller machine shops and the like, that's um, becoming more common. I, I talked to um, I talked to someone at a major robotics company that sells uh, small cobots. I I don't want to say the company just because I, I I talked to someone and they said um, you know what they said to me was that they were increasingly making sales calls into businesses that when he worked for bigger robotics manufacturers in the past, they never would have even considered. Um, he said like, you know, machine shops with, with 10 or 20 people who are now buying robots for machine tending and stuff. He said he never in a thousand years would have thought that would have happened because back in the day, they were big, unwieldy solutions and they were not affordable to those businesses. But again, um, the technology is getting better, they're getting smaller, there's more variance in what's available. And so what you're going to see is more and more small and medium-sized businesses adopting these. And as a result, you're going to see um, more experience in how they're deployed, costs coming down, so on and so forth. So there's going to be a lot of them. And the point here about the automation itself is that there are service and repair prospects here. Um, even where it's often been said that they don't need repair and they never break down. Um, as we heard from Dan Arker of ANC Electric and as we heard from Clint of ICR, uh, this is simply not the case. And that kind of brings me into the conversation that, that we just uh, played that I had with Clint um, over the phone in which he, he noted that Typically, when repairs come in, they're from robots that are a little bit older. Because obviously, when you first sell a new robot, when an OEM first sells a new robot to someone, it's going to be uh, something that's on a on a warranty. And it's only once that warranty expires that you're going to start seeing, you know, service and repair prospects for an independent shop. It seems straightforward, but it's noteworthy to mention. And so. Something that Dan had said to me, um, Dan Arker of ANC Electric, is that in the past, because progress in robotics wasn't moving very quickly, because there wasn't a big push for this, that it would typically be five or six years after a robot had been installed that it would ever even be considered for service and repair by an independent shop. Um, now, though, that you're seeing demand quickening and technology quickening, more new robotic models are being sold faster. And so he said, and, and Clint concurred, I think it's interesting, they both cited the same figures, that now it was more like one to two years. Now one to two years, 
already that factory warranty has expired and it's coming into repair shops. So, um, and then Clint said that after three to four years, that's when you're really starting to see a lot of repair prospects. Um, and so what this is a, implies is two things. One, uh, once these factories automate, it will be some time before a factory that's newly automated presents any opportunities for service and repair. You won't see this change overnight. But two, at the same time, that interval is a lot shorter than it ever was before, merely because the pace of progress has become so rapid. And so finally, I just want to make one more note, which I think is, is, a, is also a very important takeaway here, and which is very interesting, is the prospect that Clint Rose of ICR partnering with other service shops. Because something Dan had said to me was that his shop, before it really got into the electronic side of servo motors, would sometimes do mechanical work on motors for more electronically oriented shops on a contract basis. Uh, but he said he got tired of it because he said he felt like he was supporting his competitors. And so that was when uh, Dan said that his business moved toward having a more all-inclusive servo operation um, with more electronic expertise. But it took him, I think he said it, it was like a 10, 15, 20-year journey for him because getting to grips with it was so difficult. Um, but what we have with ICR is really kind of the inverse of that. They're a shop that has vast electronic and mechanical expertise, and they will partner with shops that maybe want to break into the space but lack some of the electronics knowledge. So this isn't a matter of supporting competitors from their perspective so much as merely partnering with auxiliary businesses, auxiliary service firms, and so on and so forth. And if anything, they can probably help smaller ESA shops that want to get a piece of this work to bridge the gap. And I mention it because I, I, I guess in doing these podcasts... A lot of information I give probably is tangential and is, is just merely interesting, uh, but I do try to insert a certain amount of what I think will be of direct value to our readers and listeners, so um, I guess I feel like this might be something useful to know. And I think there's a lot more useful information um, on moving into the servo space in, in the story this month for anyone who wants to take a look at that. But um, yeah, I, I think... Um, Certainly what all of these businesses are doing are great. The, the, the ANC story is great. The IRC story is great. They're slightly different, um, but I think they both illuminate different angles and, and different outlooks on what's happening in this space. And I, I, think, it's, um, I think it's exciting stuff, and I, I think they go well together. I really think I, – I promise I'm not just trying to get people to go back to the magazine, but I really think that if you read the story of ANC Electric – and then you hear about ICR, you really have two sides of the coin in a way that helps you to have a more complete picture. So anyway, I think that's about it for us today. I want to wrap it up there. If you like these podcasts, do feel free to share. Uh, share them on social media, Twitter, your blog, whatever. We're totally open to having them shared. And also, if you ever have a lead or would like to be featured in the podcast yourself or maybe in the magazine, everyone is always free to email me at dmiller at barks.com. That's D-M-I-L-L-E-R at B-A-R-K-S dot com. Now, I can't always promise I will feature anyone and everyone who reaches out. Obviously, that would be impossible. Um, but you just never know. It's worth a shot. You'd be surprised what you could get just by asking. Um, so... 
Anyway, I hope everyone enjoyed today's show. Uh, I enjoyed putting it on as per usual, and I will see everyone next month.